A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talker Radio. The sun is shining across the rooftops of London town after an epic snowfall yesterday gave everyone a welcome respite from sitting in the house staring at the four walls wondering what excuse to use for venturing out into the great outdoors. We are stuck, ladies and gentlemen, in a prison not of our own making, unable to travel, unable to visit friends, unable to have people over for drinks or anything else, unable to send our children to school, unable to go to work, unable to go to a gym or out for a swim and generally marooned in a sea of nothingness. It's awful, isn't it? Meanwhile, some children are going to school, thousands of people are travelling, many families are happily waddling around in supermarket aisles and hordes are crowding onto public transport as adverts tell us not to go out in case we kill people, despite assurances that millions of people might have COVID without knowing it because they don't have any symptoms. It's a bit of a confusing picture generally, isn't it? Has there ever been a more frustrating time to be alive? 0344 499 Coming up this morning, we're talking to SDP leader William Clouston on the 40th anniversary of the founding of his party. So much has changed since that was happening uh, way back then. Uh, and we wonder whether we will ever see the like of the kind of politicians that left the Labour Party and joined themselves up as the Social Democrats. We'll be talking, of course, also to Peter Hitchens. He joins us for another conversation about the state of things, the latest COVID statistics, and those who would silence critics of government policy on lockdown. Yes, that's right. Uh, they've all been busy at the weekend again, trying to tell us all that we're COVID deniers, telling us all that, you know, we are a disgrace to humanity. Uh, one particular bozo who works for The Observer called Nick Cohen actually made out that what we do here at Talk Radio is actually dangerous and is no different from what people are uh, who tell you not to take a vaccine. How absolutely and utterly ridiculous. And he also used disgracefully the death of a COVID denier, somebody who actually did say that it was a hoax, to make his political point. What an absolute and utter ghastly individual. 0344 499 1000. We'll also be talking about the big schools debate. If we are going to wait until the summer term before allowing children back into buildings, what kind of effect is that going to have on a generation of young minds? Steve Bryan, Tory MP, joins us. He agrees with me that we should be getting the kids back to school as soon as possible. Also, we'll be talking to author and academic Helen Pluckrose, who is setting up a new organisation aiming to be the Citizens Advice Bureau for the Culture Wars. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. How are you coping at home? What are you hearing from work or from your children's school? Do let us know. You tell us and we tell everyone else. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. 
Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very good morning uh, and a welcome right now to uh, the opening show of the week, Mr William Clouse, the leader of the Social Democratic Party. We do so uh, just as Keir Starmer uh, has notified everyone uh, that he's going to be self-isolating again after coming into contact with someone who has tested positive for COVID-19. He says, I have no symptoms and I'll be working from home until next Monday. So that, by my reckoning, is the third time that Keir Starmer has been self-isolated because he has come into contact with somebody who had COVID. They seem to get it a lot more than everybody else, these politicians, don't they? Unbelievable. 0344 499 1000. William, a very good morning to you. Morning. Great to be back. Thank you. Yes, no, thank you very much indeed on this auspicious day for your party, 40th anniversary. I mean, it's one of those uh, dates that not a lot of people listening perhaps won't remember uh, as well as you and I do. But it was quite a, a massive sea change in the political world, wasn't it, at the time? And it struck me when I was looking at the, 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 the pictures this morning of, of the launch of the SDP 40 years ago, that what substantial figures those four people were. Shirley Williams, you know, um, and, and, and the others. Absolutely extraordinary kind of individuals, very smart, very clever. Tell us a bit about it and why it happened. Well, it, was, it is a, a massive day um, for us as well to celebrate it. We take our, our history very seriously and we'll be celebrating up and down the country. It is the 40th anniversary of the issuing of the Limehouse Declaration, which was the founding document of the SDP. Um, what was it? Well, it was, for, it was basically for... Um, very, very senior Labour Party politicians that decided that politics wasn't working in this country and decided to try and make it better. Um, they left and set up the SDP. And the SDP was, uh, anyone old enough to remember in the 80s, it was the biggest challenge to the two-party uh, setup in British political history. Um, I'm sad to say it wasn't successful in, in the 80s in changing the system, but we continued to fight for uh, a change and argue for it. Yes, indeed. And the four people who were involved, I mean, Roy Jenkins, as I said, Shirley Williams, um, and David Owen and Bill Rogers, I think it was. Um, I mean, yeah. they were all big beasts of the Labour Party in a way. I mean, Bill Rogers, maybe slightly to a lesser extent, but they were all very well thought of individuals. And it struck me that we don't have those kinds of politicians really in any great numbers anymore. Yeah, I think the, there, has, there has been a decline in the quality of frontline uh, politicians. And um, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. They were very, very big uh, figures. Uh, Jenkins, former uh, Home Secretary and Chancellor and Deputy Leader of the Labour Party. Um, George Brown, the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party in the, in the 60s, joined. Uh, David Owen, uh, a major figure, former Foreign Secretary and so on. So, yeah, I mean, huge figures. Um, I think that the decline in the quality of politicians generally is, is not just on the Labour side. I think the Tories, if you want to look at, you know, a decent cabinet, have a look. I mean, I didn't agree with them at the time. And, but if you want to have a look at a good quality cabinet, look at the photograph of Mrs. Thatcher's first cabinet in 79. I, I would calculate about 12 or 13, 14 of those members of the cabinet were, would have been worthy prime ministers on quality. So, yeah, there has been a decline and um, there are many reasons for that. But the, the, the basic message that the SDP tried to get across was actually, you know, highly subversive, really. It was quite revolutionary, which is that the, we should get away from vested interests in politics. Um, you know, I think many of the problems that, that we identified back 40 years ago are still around. I mean, you've still got a vested interest basis to politics. You've yeah. still got the Labour Party. Every time it gets in, it just looks after the public sector. I know people might argue about this now, but broadly speaking, the Tories look after the business interests. Yeah. It doesn't seem to occur to them 
that there's a, a balance between those things and you can govern the interests of the whole country. Mm. Well, as you say, there is a slight uh, wrinkle, I suppose, to that, that summation of, of the way things yeah. are, which I agree with, by the way. I don't think you're wrong, because what they do do apparently now is look after the business interests that they want to look after. And they've now mm. thrown to the wolves the business interests that they don't care about. And I suppose that's where it's different, because that, in a way, is more insidious than it was. Yeah, they see, they do seem incapable of seeing the bigger bigger whole. Mm. But that's as I say, that's just a, a sort of pathology in politics generally, and it doesn't occur to people that um, you know very very successful societies offer a blend of of market and state and have you know a strong and capable state, but but you know value free enterprise and prize it because that's where the, the wealth is generated. And again, the balance. Neither of the the duopoly parties seem to get the balance right. Um, uh, the Lib Dems now are actually a joke as a party. I mean, declining rapidly. I think they're in real trouble. Yeah. When we launched the sort of resurgence in the SDPI, I said a couple of years ago, my aim would be to replace them within 10 years. And we're very realistic. And I think that that's achievable given given the way they are. I mean, I, I think they're not even celebrating today, the Lib Dems. They've completely lost the plot. Yes, they have. Well, they don't really know what they stand for. I mean, last time I heard Ed Davey speak, he was talking about going around the country to ask people what he should stand for, you know, which in my view is kind of the wrong way around. If you're a politician, surely you should stand for something and try to convince other people that they should believe in you. Yeah, he's. I mean, just to get onto the Lib Dems, it's very interesting. So that they technically they have real problems. Um, you won't get anywhere in politics unless you believe in, in something, unless you have a clear idea of what your foundational system is. And the Lib Dems now have three separate ideas. It's not a big party anymore. It's only got about four or five percent of the vote. Right. And within that four or five percent of the vote, they're representing three things. You have these sort of proper liberals, classical liberals, Gladstonian free trade types. Orange Book. I mean, that's fine. That's a fine tradition. It's not my politics, but it's it's a fine tradition. But, you know, frankly, Mike, there are more of those type of liberals in the Tory party than there are in the Lib Dems. Mm. And then you've got the sort of wokey types like Leila Moran. Now, I can't see any difference between the woke attitude that they have and the woke attitudes get in the Labour Party. I mean, they may as well, those people basically should just go away and, and join the Labour Party. Maybe they should just to... form a new party called the Woke Party. Well, they've got it. It's the Labour Party. I mean, without wishing to get too theoretical here, I mean, we also have two leaders of the two main parties who don't apparently believe in much either. I mean, I've no idea what Keir Starmer actually believes in because he sort of blows with the prevailing wind. And Boris Johnson, we keep hearing is a libertarian, but everything that he does would appear to suggest that that's not true. I think, Mike, I think they are actually, I think actually all of them, this is a problem, all of them are just different types of liberals and they're all pretty woke, mm. Mike. There is a major uh, you know, misalignment between what the public thinks out there in the hinterland and what parliamentarians think. Again, one of the things that the SDP tried to, to shift 40 years ago was this misalignment between what, you know, the people in parliament and out there in the country. And you saw this, I mean, I saw lots of interviews post 2016 that you did about Brexit, yeah. you know, and the basic problem was that the politicians in that institution in parliament were way uh, out of out of alignment with what people thought in the country. The mainstream moderate position was to leave the EU, but the parliament was chock-a-block full of liberals of various kinds. Now, if honestly, if you want to change that, you've got to change the voting system because, you know, there are challenger parties, there are people with a different view, but this rigged system that we have basically locks us out. And until you change that, you won't get a parliament 
that in any way reflects the divisions in society. But the difficulty with any other form of uh, uh, of electoral system, aside from first past the post, is that they also all have their own problems, don't they? Because in the end, what you can end up with is a kind of Scottish situation where you either become like a one-party state where nobody really has much power at all, uh, or you get a sort of constant stream of various coalitions being made. Well, you do. I, I would. I, I don't think we. I mean, there's no perfection under the sun, Mike. But you know, frankly, I mean, remember, don't don't pretend that Labour and the Tories aren't coalitions anyway. I mean, they're massive, massive coalitions. From in the Labour Party, you've got, you know, Marxists right through to sort of social democrats or socialists in the middle, and you've got a lot of people. And the Tories are the same. You've got a, a, you know, you've got one or two traditional social and moral conservatives left in there, yeah. but most of them are liberals. And you've got a, a broad range. The only difference is that basically the coalition is done by those two big parties, and then they put the coalition platform to the public. I mean, we would argue that why don't people vote honestly for what they want, get that representation in Parliament, and then do the coalition? I think that's a more a clearer, uh, more transparent way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, certainly up in Scotland at one point when the uh, SNP had to form a coalition with the Green Party, it then turned out that an awful lot of policy became greener as a result. Fair enough, I suppose you could argue that that's the case. However, not that many people voted for the Green Party and they had an un a disproportionate, I would say, influence on government policy just because they were the ones that had done the deal with the government. Yeah, and no, I take that point. I think that's that's fair. I mean, I don't think Scottish politics is a very uh, apt comparison anyway, because um, I think it is frankly distorted by the SNP yeah. separatism, and that well, dominates. There's very strange things going up there as well, which we will probably address later in the week. It's probably too complex to get into now, but there's some very odd questions being asked, and not very many answers coming back. There are. I mean, but the, as I say, the, the the whole Scottish politics is distorted by this SNP project, and I think it's utter disgrace. Mm. The, SDP, the, the SNP can start uh, campaigning for another referendum during a pandemic. I mean, what are they thinking of? Well, I know. It's absolutely extraordinary. And also, um, by kind of misappropriating uh, British government funds and not spending them properly, which is apparently what's been going on, uh, and then claiming they don't get enough money. I mean, it's quite disingenuous, if, if not worse. But let's talk a little bit about where we are now as well, William, because obviously we'll come back to the, the two-party system and how difficult it is to break through that if you are a different party. Um, but looking at uh, uh, the landscape of the next few weeks, it doesn't look like we're going to be moving anywhere anytime soon. Uh, I'm looking at some figures from Public Health England this week, the executive summary uh, of the COVID-19 and National Influenza report. They say that in week two, um, the case numbers started to go down. Infection rates started to go down. Now, we're told all the time that lockdown and its effects do not really kick in for at least three to four weeks. So if they're you know, seeing infection rates going down in the second week of January, that would tend to suggest, would it not, that they were coming down anyway? There's never been a very clear um, link uh, empirically between the time that lockdowns are put on and the peak of the viral curves. Uh, you know, the, frankly, it's quite a weak link, actually. I mean, in, in the very first um, wave in, in March, actually, the, the peak was prior to the lockdown and so on. So these things are quite weak. I would, I would just, I mean, frankly, I think the point on, on lockdown resistance politically, you've got to keep on up making the case. Yep. We've never asked for, for very much as a party. We've only asked that the government should try and look at the costs of suppression measures to try and quantify them, um, to try and even acknowledge that there are some costs. Mm. Um, that's, that's been our argument all along. 
Um, I think the point is moot because I don't think they're going to move on any of this stuff. I think what is encouraging, if you look at Saturday's uh, you know, to vaccination total, I mean, that's, my, that's very impressive nearly half a million yeah um, so you know that i think basically hopefully in a few literally in a, a matter of weeks um you know we, we we've got to be looking at um, unlocking and getting on and, well you uh, would I think, think so but you would like to think that you'd then be hearing that sort of noise being made by the government rather than this kind of consistent scaremongering boris johnson at it again on friday talking about how this new variant might actually be more deadly and might kill more people than the last one turns out there was no scientific basis for that whatsoever yeah, that, that they find out, don't they, a few weeks later. But they, the government have been from the start pretty keen. I think it's basically, Mike, it's the reason why they haven't been willing to look at any of the broader costs and the long-term costs because they, they're just hammering a single message. And any, any, anything that helps that single message, they will, they will hammer, so they'll use it. But, I mean, it, it, you know, on the, if you stand back and look at some of the, the data, um, some of the things they're saying that doesn't, you know, don't make actually a great deal of sense. They're talking about, you know, the South African strain, what is it, 80 people tested positive for that yeah. in the UK? Well, you've got you've got over a million people with with COVID currently in the yeah. UK. So, I mean, frankly, you know, that's that is a drop in the ocean, uh, whatever the differences are. I mean, I'm not underplaying it, but I think any basically any message that the government can use to frighten people and to continue the policy they into, will but yeah, I, into I think, continuing not to do anything and continuing to keep schools closed continuing to hmm. damage young minds continuing to frustrate people's ability to make a living and when i was hmm. looking at some other figures and i'm always asking for these about the numbers of people who get covid go into hospital and then get released because they don't actually die apparently hmm. out of a thousand people um over 60 uh, who got covid and were admitted to hospital uh, basically 10 would die under the old um, former, you know, first wave of the virus. Yeah. Now, apparently, it's 13. That's still mm. an incredibly low number out of 1,000. Yeah, not a huge amount of data either. I mean, as I say, I think we're just in... I'm, I'm hoping we're in a situation now where, thankfully, this country is doing rather well on the vaccinations. Um, you know, and apart from Israel, it's basically it's, it's the, it's the biggest total of any large country. And again, you've got to feel sorry, actually, frankly, for the Europeans who've, who've been totally hampered by their own bureaucracy and seem incapable of rolling out a vaccine across the, the various member states mm. with any efficiency. And all those people that said that, you know, things were better with a large uh, centralised bureaucracy, I think have been proved wrong. It's actually nation states have, have done rather better, but that's a separate point. Yes. No, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, the one thing that Britain has been very successful at is, is the rollout of the vaccination, and that and that can only be applauded. But by the same token, as you say, I mean, people are now calling, uh, Robert Halfen this morning, calling for a roadmap uh, out of this. I've been calling for that for the last two weeks at minimum. You know, Julie Hartley Brewer and I have been banging this particular drum probably for the best part of the last three months, and only now are actual MPs starting to make noises about it. You've got to keep the pressure up, and, and certainly the, the the criticism of people that have been sceptical or even questioned the measures from the start is a disgrace in a democracy. I thought we were allowed to ask questions here. I thought we were. We well, I'm sorry. It's not a, actually. It's not about whether they allow us. It's about our right to do so. Yeah, exactly. That's precisely my point. And you know, I think you should. I mean, unless we have some scrutiny, unless you have some people questioning things, basically the government can do what it likes. Mm. So no, it's a public duty to question. Actually, I think. And as I say, we haven't asked from the start. We actually haven't asked for very much. I think all of this is going to be a matter for the subsequent public inquiry. And I'm sad to say, actually, I think a lot of the things that we were saying about the long-term effects 
were, are, are going to bear out. But you know, it'll be it'll be uh, past the event by then. Right. And finally, William, just on the on the kind of two party system, there's talk um, in America. I don't know whether it will happen that Donald Trump is thinking about forming his own party, which may be called the Patriot Party. If he's got such a big um, base, could that be? Um, say an example of how to bust the two-party system because he could take an awful lot of votes away from the uh, the Republicans. I'm fairly sceptical about his ability to do that. I, I I'm not saying his base isn't very significant and strong. I think it is. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, across the Anglosphere, um, we tend to have two-party systems for some reason. It's interesting, you know, Canada has had a change recently uh, but basically, the states, ha you know, have one. We have one. Ireland has one. Australia, New Zealand, basically have them. I think the the voting system is connected to it because if you can get people in Parliament, you've got a chance, actually, and you then then people can at least convene and put different ideas mm. forward. I mean, I've always said that the the worst um, the worst number of political parties in a country is one, and the second worst is two. <laughs> Yes, well, I think we can probably agree on that one as well. William, good to talk to you. Thank you. Happy birthday to the SDP. 40 years old today. Uh, William Clouston, their leader of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, very much an anti-lockdown party. Um, but, you know, again, that's a phrase that sounds negative, anti-lockdown. It's not anti-lockdown as such. It is actually sensible to ask questions about whether the lockdown uh, is working, when the lockdown can be relaxed, why the lockdown can't be relaxed, if the schools can be opened, when can they be opened? These are all questions that every parent and every individual citizen of this country wants to know the answers to. Why can we not fly somewhere? Why can we not get on a, on a train? Why can we not drive to Scotland and go and see our relatives? Why can we not do all of these things that the government, who we pay, basically, say that we can't do. By the way, what a disgrace that it was revealed in the Sunday Times yesterday. Let me just put this one out there. Uh, that MPs are now claiming for the extra um, electricity and gas that they're using working from home. This at the same time as claiming for their expenses as they would normally do if they were working in London in Parliament. What's that all about? Don't you think that that is a disgrace? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Do you remember when they said it might be a good idea to come back from uh, the Christmas holidays, perhaps a week late? Schools might wish to stay closed for an extra week just to take care of any uh, infection that might have happened over the course of the Christmas holidays, despite the fact that very few people actually could do very much at Christmas after Christmas was more or less cancelled by the government. Um, it then became a couple of weeks. Uh, it then became, well, maybe up until half term. Uh, middle of February, perhaps. Maybe after that, people can go back. Now, Gavin Williamson, uh, who is, of course, the Education Secretary, is expected this week to announce that actually that's not very likely to happen either. And it's probably more likely to be Easter before children can come back to school. Now, I'm aware that there are still children being taught in school. I'm aware that children of key workers and vulnerable children are still going to school and that teachers are still working. I'm also aware of the fact that my own children are getting much better online learning than they were back in uh, uh, April and May of last year. However, you know, this is really not something that we can put up with for a very long time. And several Tory MPs are now agreeing uh, with what we've been saying here at Talk Radio for a while. Steve Bryant, former public health minister and Conservative MP for Winchester, uh, has supported the Us For Them campaign. Steve, very good morning to you. Morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, we talk an awful lot to people with children, many of whom are working from home now, many of whom are struggling to, to homeschool their kids and, and supervise them, even though uh, they're being given assignments from school, particularly, you know, some primary school uh, kids. Um, we sort of need a, a, a plan here, don't we? 
You're not kidding, we do. I thought you put it very well when you, you sort of gave that uh, awful rundown of what, what it will be and then, oh, then we'll have this, then we'll have that. Um, I, I think that this weekend... Um, because parents maybe a bit, a bit of snow and they've seen their children since a little bit of a twinkle in their eye again. Um, I think this weekend parents have started to see some of the news headlines and they've started to think, this is going to go on a lot longer than we thought. Yeah. I think people put up with it last year. Hmm. I think even at the turn of the year, they thought, okay, you know, we understand. It's a bit, bit of a January. And now, May? Um, I think uh, the argument that, that I'm setting out is that once you've vaccinated the top four most vulnerable groups, and you've given it a few weeks for that to take effect. You've reduced the risk of mortality from COVID by about 90%. The risk of hospitalizations by more than 50%. You need to start bringing our economy and our society back to life. Yes. And the first piece of that jigsaw is our schools, which the government rightly says is its priority. So what we're asking for now is that ministers set out a plan to bring some clarity for this and i heard um jeff barton who leads the, the association of college lecturers union this morning on the media saying that school leaders would like that clarity as well and i sure as hell know that parents and children do they absolutely do because it's the not knowing i think that, that really frustrates so many people i mean we speak to neil oliver up in scotland every week and he was saying that one of his children 17 year old um who had previously been talking about wanting to go to juilliard maybe in new york you know traveling far and wide around the world is now sort of walking around the house kicking her heels kind of saying things like what's the point of doing anything? yeah and i think see, that's I really 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 dangerous and we keep hearing, don't we? I mean, Anne Longfield was out on the media this morning talking about the mental health um, impacts of all of this on children. And we sort of say that almost almost slightly glibly because it becomes a, it becomes a thing that we say. But, but actually, you know, look, look into what you know, look into what you see as the mental health impacts of this on children. The, you know, the slightly withdrawn, the what's the point mentality. And that's why I think, this is now becoming such an issue and it's coming to a head is because we have the rollout of the vaccine. Mm. It is going well. It's not that we're asking for some arbitrary timetable. We think that it should be linked to key milestones in the rollout of the vaccine. On Saturday, we had half a million almost vaccines delivered. And the government are very keen, rightly, to laud the success in the rollout of the vaccine. Yeah. But then they don't give us any hope as to what that means. They can't have it both ways. So we've set a date at the start of March, which frankly is regrettably not right after half term when I'd like it to be because of what I've said about vaccinating the top groups and then letting the vaccine take effect, which will then lead to, um, you know, that's tied to those groups, lead to reduction, hospitalisation and deaths. And we're asking for a plan just simply based on the milestones, on the evidence so that school leaders and parents and children can have some hope and know what to expect. Mm, I don't think that is unreasonable. Well, no, I think it's absolutely perfectly reasonable. It's something also I've been asking for in all areas of, uh, of our society as well, not just in schools, but obviously schools, as you say, very, very important keystones for everything else, because we need to see some targets. You know, for example, at what point will it be decided um, that, you know, we can live with whatever level of coronavirus is in society? Because clearly it's going to be here for a while. I heard this morning a, a couple of good ideas, people suggesting why not look at area by area schooling so that you know if, if you've got an area where there is a very low uh, intensity of infection you know could you open the schools there without necessarily opening all schools 
Well, yes. And uh, I think Jenny Harries, Dr. Harries from Public Health England, actually said uh, that yeah. at a Downing Street press conference a week or so ago. But I mean, the, the wider point here is that, you know, we clearly we have a moving situation with COVID and, and variants. Everybody understands that. Mm. But I think the government, the public now need to understand the government's philosophy. Now we have a vaccine. You know, I, I always understood it to be that we should contain the virus until science saves us and the cavalry comes yes. over the hill. Well, the cavalry is over the hill and it's in open fields. And the most vulnerable are being protected at an impressive rate through the vaccination program. And now success seems to be about case numbers. It seems to be about how we're going to protect those that refuse to have the vaccine. You know, are we seriously in this country considering a zero covid strategy? I, I really hope not, because right. th that is a that is a council of despair and impossible. So, you know, the prime minister said last year that keeping schools closed a moment longer than absolutely necessary was socially intolerable, economically unsustainable and morally indefensible. Yes. Well, he I keeps agree. saying that he's not uh, doing things um, that he wants to do. He keeps saying he doesn't want to do things. We keep hearing they don't want to shut schools. Mm. You know, we keep hearing that. He said schools were safe one Sunday interview with Andrew Marr. The next day, the schools were shut. You know, and I've heard also disturbing uh, sort of um, arguments being made by those who don't want to open schools, saying, well, the problem with just opening schools because teachers are vaccinated is the vaccination doesn't stop you getting COVID. Well, yeah, but, you know, so what does that mean then? Does that mean we never reopen them? Well, well, exactly. That's what I mean by the Council of Despair. And, you know, Jenny Harries, again, was giving evidence to the Education Select Committee just last week. And she said, you know, at the moment, there is no significant evidence that schools are drivers of infection. Mm. It's very much a closed community, she said. Look, you know, flu is virulent in the community in any year. Uh, and people die of flu, vaccinated or otherwise. But what we... But, but it, and it can be a very dangerous virus, but we have a vaccine for it. We now have a vaccine for this. Yeah. So the most vulnerable in society will be vaccinated. You know, we can, and, and if you're a teacher and you're in that vulnerable category, you will have been vaccinated by the 15th of February as well. So, so my argument, and I said this in Parliament two weeks ago, so I'm no, no Johnny come lately here, is that if reopening schools is the government's priority, and I know that it is, mm. then, then we'd like to see the money, please. Yes. And I, that, for me... That does mean vaccinating teachers, police officers and frontline um, supermarket workers at the top of the phase two. So yeah. after the 15th of February uh, deadline, because frankly, once that's then happened, what can then be the objection of the teaching unions to reopening schools? They are safe environments and we have to balance the, the risk against all the other impacts on our young people of not doing so. It, you know, yes, it's about our young people and their mental health, but it's also about the, 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 the mental health of their parents. Mm. And, and we cannot go on like this. As I said, you know, if we are seriously considering a zero COVID strategy in this country, then we are going to be disappointed. And it feels a bit like every time we meet a milestone, the goalposts then move back again. Not good enough. We, we have to learn to live with this. As um, Patrick Vallance said last week, COVID is going to be with us forever. Mm. It will just be contained. Well, it's being contained by the vaccine and we have a good rollout of that. We need to move on from this once hospitalizations start to fall and deaths start to fall, which could happen very quickly. Yeah. And, and you know what? The problem that I have, and we've discussed this before, is that Parliament is a shadow of itself. It is not able to hold the government to account properly because there are so few people in there. We need to grasp that nettle, however difficult it is. And, and we need the, the opposition 
to start asking difficult questions and the media to start asking difficult questions other than, frankly, talk radio are the only ones who seem to be doing so yeah. around Unlock. Yeah, we're Everybody taking a lot else. of flack for it as well, by the way. Oh, Steve. yeah. Well, you will because, you see, the trouble is is there is this narrative that as soon as people question, as soon as people question, then they are somehow deniers and we are somehow, you know, we are we are the dangerous ones. And and frankly, those of us, that is a scandal. Those of us that are asking questions of our elected government, that is that doesn't make us um, libertarians. It doesn't make us people who dare to dissent from the Westminster consensus. It makes those of us who are doing that the ones who are doing our jobs. Yes. And and I think that there is coming a point in this country where public opinion is going to flip. And as I said right at the start of this conversation, I think parents are going to lead that flip. I think this weekend you have seen parents up and down the land having conversations across the across the dinner table saying, you know, this is this is a problem. Mm. And once public opinion starts to flip, then maybe you will see the opposition uh, start to flip too. Well, I and, wonder, uh, yeah, because you make a very so. good point about the mental health of the family as well as just the children. Because let's face it, you know, there's not very many people who are attached to Westminster who understand what goes on up and down the country, that many people don't even have a dinner table to sit and talk across, that an awful lot of people live in very cramped conditions. An awful lot of people find it incredibly frustrating uh, to get up and, and have to spend every single day with their family and their kids all staring at the same four walls. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 quite. I mean, you know, we have the opposition day in Parliament today. The Labour Party are, are discussing council tax and employment rights, both very important subjects. But, you know, consequently, there are no urgent questions and there are no statements granted today because we because the understanding is we won't take away their time for their debates. You know what? There's going to be no money to pay for your council tax right. unless we have any sort of economy. There's going to be no employment mm. for our young people to go to to have rights in unless we get them educated. You know, we're, we're sinking fast here. We need a plan. And we need to grip this. And that's all we're saying is that we need a plan that goes in lockstep with the vaccination programme. And if that makes me a troublemaker and a rebel rouser and a, all, all those other words that I get called, well, guilty. Well, as they say in Casablanca, welcome to the fight. This time I know we will win. Because <laughs> we have to, Steve. There is simply no other choice for it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Steve Bryan, former Public Health Minister, Conservative MP for Winchester, top man, as what I would say, supports the Us For Them campaign, knows precisely what it is that needs to be done. And what needs to be done is what we've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks. The schools need to be reopened. The teachers need to be vaccinated. We need to get on with the rest of our lives before it all dwindles away down the gurgler. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very, very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, welcome. How are you? Good morning. So far, so good. Excellent. morning. Yes, it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, unfortunately, I didn't get any snow uh, uh, exposure yesterday because where I was, it didn't actually reach. And by the time I got back to London, it had gone. So um, I don't know whether your uh, Oxford was... was... We had a little in Oxford. Um, A lot of people rushed out and made uh, snowmen. In fact, all over the the hill, quite near where I live, people were making snow families. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain whether there are any COVID restrictions that have been issued about snow. I'm surprised people knew what to do. I wasn't sure. I, I wondered whether the police might come out and tell us all to go home and yeah. stop enjoying themselves. But I, I, I think the snowball squad are 
the problem. <laughs> yes, I mean you've had an interesting weekend as ever. Um, obviously, I read, your, I read your column with with interest. Your uh, the attacks on you continue. Uh, some of them from official sources, some of them unofficial. Uh, what are you making of it all? Well, I think that it, it was something that I predicted that the the supporters of this uh, of this lockdown have got mixed up uh, with the Cultural Revolution. And an awful lot of people on the cultural and liberal left, the, the Blairites who want a, a stronger state and a generally more regulated and less free society, are riding on this. And obviously they see anybody like me who, who gets in the way as a considerable nuisance. And there are a lot of them. And I, when I say Blairites, I generally include pretty much all of the Conservative Party as yes. well, and a very large part of the media. So I've, I've made a lot of enemies, but I, I think... Uh, one of Winston Churchill's many wise remarks, if you haven't made any enemies in your life, you probably haven't done anything of any importance or interest. So that's all right. right. Um, what's important is, is, is that people such as me keep on standing up to it, because if, you, if there is no opposition in the country, that country is automatically less free. So it's a sort of, uh, it, it's a sort of moral duty in a way to keep on at it, uh, e even when I personally am quite sick of the arguments in many cases. And would dearly love to start writing again at length about other things. Yes. I have occasionally stretched out into that. The fact is, if we, if we, if, if those of us who feel this, is, this has been a mistake stop saying so, uh, then the country becomes completely monolithic and, uh, and and sinks into a sort of torpid tyranny where yes. everybody thinks the same thing and people get into trouble for speaking out. We can't have that, can we? So well, we can't. Absolutely right. But on my part, is, 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 is worth is worth doing. No, of course. And and I've noticed of late in the last week or so um, that the criticism of, of people like you, though, has taken a slightly sinister turn in as much as they're no longer accusing you of getting it wrong. They're now accusing you of being actively sort of dangerous. Yes, I, mean, I think that, that that is a totalitarian step. Uh, the the idea that a person himself is dangerous is obviously obviously means that, that person uh, should in some way be restrained. I, I I wouldn't like to go any further down the road of speculation. Then mm. this kind of thinking uh, is dangerous, and my knowledge of history, slice as it is, tells me that quite often there's it, been a fairly rapid descent from reasonably free societies into the most terrible tyrannies because people haven't being careful about this sort of thing. So I warn anybody who uses this kind of language to be very careful, not least because if things turn bad, it, it's quite likely to be used against them. And anybody who leads a mob very rapidly often finds himself being chased by the same mob. So be careful what forces you stir up. I still say absolutely insist on, on tolerance, on, the, on assuming that my opponents have good motives, as I believe that I have, and that we are all members of the same country and the same society trying to work out things for the best by having a civilised debate about it. And I wish they'd, more of them would do the same. But there's so much of this denier stuff, which we discussed, I think, last week, mm. the dog whistle smear, uh, and that the, it was nonsense. Who's denying anything? Uh, and, it, that it's, and, and then you get this the ridiculous um, magazine Private Eye, which used to be a, 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 an independent, satirical, anti-establishment magazine, is now an establishment rag. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, I'm amazed how that has happened. It has become literally, you know, everything that it used to rail against. Well, almost. I mean, it's, it's still regarded. I think it's like, like, like almost all people who've climbed into the establishment from having been radical in, in the past, uh, they still regard themselves as terribly revolutionary and, and funky. 
But the fact is that what they do by attacking independent journalism is is the government's work. And I, I just think that they that is people ought to be aware of the way in which institutions and and newspapers and magazines change under these circumstances. And the whole idea of a satirical magazine attacking independent journalism, attacking dissent. It's ludicrous, but they, 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 it doesn't even cross their minds. No. And what is it that their beef is with you, exactly? Oh, well, I don't know. I think maybe some of it's slightly personal. I, I've no idea. I, I, they, Private and I have been having a go at me on and off since the late 1970s when they discovered I'd once been a Trotskyist, <laughs> uh, something I never made a particular secret no. of. Uh, I remember calling me back when I was industrial correspondent in the Thatcher era, a Trotskyite defector. Uh, and recounting pretty unimportant stories of, of minor things that yeah. happened to me in industrial girls. But that's, no, that's normal. That's life. But this is slightly different. Uh, so they, a few, uh, actually a year ago now, uh, more than a year ago, when I was working on the extraordinary business of the, uh, of the, the chemical weapons controversy over Syria, they also attacked me over that. And for, for, as I say, independent dissenting journalism, which is something which one of their founding figures, Paul Foote, was very much in favour of, so I just find, oh, for goodness sake. But it's a, it's a sign of the change of things that all the people, almost all the people who were radical in the 1960s and 1970s have now climbed into the establishment. Mm. And it, it, it turns out that their radicalism was only against the old establishment, which they got rid of. Uh, once they are in, in, in any kind of position of authority or, or power themselves, they seem to have lost any kind of respect for, for dissent or free speech. Mm. Uh, it's, it's very. It, they they weren't. Uh, they weren't, as it turns out, radical because they were left wing. Uh, they were radical because they weren't in power. Yeah. Now they're in power. There's 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 conservative as any sort of horrible old uh, old continental despotism. Yes. Do you think that the well of kind of independent thought and journalism has been poisoned by money to some extent? Because you know when you and I first got into journalism it was not considered to be a business that you would get very wealthy doing we did it largely because we were curious i myself quite liked causing trouble i quite liked yeah. asking awkward questions i quite liked putting people on the spot i never dreamed that i would actually make quite a lot of money out of doing it but an awful lot of people now are making a great deal of money out of the journalism they're doing and i wonder whether that's kind of colored their th thought process it might have done. Certainly, the trade has completely changed. It wasn't at all respectable when I joined. It. No, uh, I think I, my my sort of upper lower middle class parents were quite embarrassed <laughs> a thing, uh, and it, it was generally seen as pretty in for a dig to be to be a, a, a newspaper reporter. And as for working on the popular press, uh, as opposed to the unpopular press, that was that was that was bad too. It has undergone a huge revolution in status, and yeah, it is much better rewarded. Uh, than it used to be, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the, the top writers of my early years at the Daily Express, people like George Gale, I think they'd be amazed at the, the sort of money which people are making out of um, out of comment journalism. Mm. Of course, George, as I, who was uh, one of um, my great supporters in my early career, he'd made his reputation doing quite dangerous reporting from Africa yeah. in the in the days of the Congo and Katanga and all the rest of it. And he was a proper reporter. Who'd, come into comment, as I think people should do, uh, as a result of factual knowledge and experience. But I, I think something very showbizy and semi-political has happened 
to what used to be a pretty unrespectable, raucous trade. And I'm not sure it's changed for the better. No, I think that's right. And also, there seems to be a, a view abroad, certainly in political journalism, that the pinnacle of what you can do is not to be the editor of a newspaper or to be a columnist, but it is to go and work in Downing Street, you know, like Allegra Stratton's done and like Alistair Campbell did. And so therefore, you know, they, they don't want to sort of, um, you know, muddy the waters too much um, and they don't want to upset too many people. No, this, this came to me many years. The first time I, I ever got into, into real trouble in journalism, I, I was brought back from Moscow in the, in the, the Kinnock mm. major election, was in 92, uh, by an editor who wanted me to have a go at Neil Kinnock, which I duly did. Right. And there was the episode, incomprehensible and inexplicable now, called Jennifer's Year, about a yeah. poor girl uh, who, who featured in a Labour political broadcast. And this got me into trouble with the, the other journalists. I remember being being savage, but it was the first time I've ever given a press conference uh, by my colleagues. Right. And a couple of them later on, who had been journalists at the time and, and, and waving their microphones in my face, later went off to work for what one might call major institutions of the establishment. And yeah. I thought, that that's completely strange to me. For me, the whole idea was to stay in journalism and, and climb to whatever bit of it you could you, you could you, you could be happiest in, not to use journalism as a stepping stone to government. But mm. increasingly, it is that. Yeah. And some journalists seem to me, uh, the ones who cover politics, seem to me to have got far too close to government uh, for their own good and for the good of their readers. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And I think so many of them um, in the days when you could have dinner parties would be having dinner parties at which MPs and members of the cabinet would be in attendance. And I just think that's way too cosy. I mean, I would, if I was running a newspaper, I would ban all journalists from, uh, from ever mingling with politicians in anything other than a bar. Well, there was a lot of lunching when I was in the parliamentary lobby in the 1980s. Uh, I, I can't stand lunch anymore because I associated the sitting around tables with politicians. And, and, but it wasn't. <laughs> lunch is not is not quite the same as dinner, and this restaurant is not quite the same as yeah. home. And we we knew perfectly well that what we'd done is we'd bought their time. Yeah. Uh, and that's what was going. On. I don't think any of was one or two may have regarded individual politicians as friends. Uh, but I, I never did. I thought they will be friendly to me as long as it suits them, and I'll do the same. But that's as far as it goes. But I think it's got a lot more incestuous since then. Yes. Now, what do you make of what's just come out? You may not have seen it, but uh, but Boris Johnson basically saying today, I think he was out and about doing something. I saw him on television wearing a mask, talking uh, to somebody on the TV. Uh, he saw, he's talking about the possibility of reviewing the lockdown situation uh, on February the 15th, which, of course, is the date by which we're told they'll have rolled out millions more vaccinations to the top four most vulnerable groups. I mean, maybe some of what we are doing is cutting through to them. Well, I don't know. I have, I've always applied the rule of opposites with Mr. Johnson. As soon as he says that something isn't going to happen, it does. Right. And as soon as something is going to happen, it doesn't. Right. So I'm not going to get my hopes up. Uh, I noticed uh, that it was reported on Saturday that the powers enabling councils to continue to close down uh, pubs and restaurants have been extended into July now, I think. Yeah. Uh, quietly and without uh, without uh, much fuss or announcement. So, uh, while well, I'd be delighted if this turns out to be the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, whatever it is, I'm not sure that it will. There's an awful lot of people uh, in government, it seems to me, who would want to prevent that from happening. And who knows what leaks about new deadly uh, alien viruses will come out in the next few weeks. I also find that this, this whole atmosphere being created by the current wave of government propaganda. They're looking to the eyes of this person. Can you truly say? Oh, I know. That? 
I, it's it quite extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it is. It's, it's it also it's, it's quite rude because say what you like about the British population's attitude towards this. There is no doubt that millions of people have put themselves to a great deal of inconvenience and unpleasantness because they believe that they're doing good to their fellow creatures by staying inside and not going out and not mixing. And to, 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 to respond to this by a barrage of propaganda saying, watch out or you'll kill this person, mm. uh, seems to me to be just wrong. Uh, or is it, or are they just preparing us for the next stage where they'll say, look, you haven't, uh, you haven't been good enough, you haven't stayed at home enough, you haven't, you've breathed too hard yeah. or whatever it was. So now we're going to introduce yet more regulations. I think that the map of the next few weeks is, is still cloudy and unclear. Yeah. I wouldn't want to, I, the vaccination, as you rightly say, has been a rare government success. Uh, they do seem to have actually got quite a lot of people vaccinated. But of course, it, the vaccination doesn't have an immediate impact. The person who's vaccinated isn't, isn't uh, apparently immune for some time afterwards. So we need to wait a bit. But if only that were to become the route out, I, I would be among the happiest of. of oh, I think so. And I think a lot, an awful lot of people who are getting the vaccination do feel much better for having had it and they feel as though that is some form of of, of of sort of relief for them because it shows that there is possibly a way out but i think the problem with all of this advertising and and propaganda as you put it is that it kind of it creates a two-tier society in a way because it creates fear in some people uh, who then, I mean, we had a call last week from a woman who said that she went to get her mother from a care home and she took her out for an outing. They were going to go to a shop and the woman was terrified of going out because she thought she was breaking the law. And she didn't yeah. want, you know, she was one of those decent British people who didn't want to be associated with lawbreaking, right? And then you get, uh, you get other people. Anyone do want to be associated with lawbreaking, do it? I, I, it's, it's, I, there's, there's two issues here. One, I, we like to keep to the law. Two, we don't want to, if, if there is any, uh, if there is any force in these regulations, uh, whether one doubts it or not, one has to leave open the possibility there is. A, you don't want to be the person who, uh, who scoffs at it and did damage. And also, there's a simple question of manners, good manners to other people who yeah. do believe in the So, I know this wants to break the law, but the problem is if you have a, a country in which the law is so vague and the boundary between laws and, and, uh, and, and advice is so unclear, and in, in which it's no longer possible ever to be sure what is and what is not legal. Mm. Then that undermines the whole idea of the rule of law, which is a, a voluntary thing where good people simply abide by the law because they believe in it. And if the law is too unclear to abide by, then you then then you're lost. Well, that's also, right. the law, the law should the law should start from the principle you're free unless yes, uh, rather than uh, unless we say so, you can do things. Well, it's that's right. Well, exactly right. And, and, and I mean, you know, we are often accused by the people who call us, you know, COVID deniers that we're encouraging others to break the law, which we are certainly not doing. And I've never encouraged anybody not to socially distance or not to wear a mask uh, when asked to do so. But this is the other thing that if you have adverts, as we do currently on this radio station, over which I obviously have no control, which finish with a line that says, um, uh, don't bend the rules because people will die. A lot of other people will listen to that and say, well, I'm sorry, I don't believe that. And then they well, will not heed the warning. There has always been a problem with, with uh, publicity of this kind. I mean, it's it, personally, I'm very much in favour of a huge national effort to stop people from smoking because it, I, I've seen personally the consequences yeah. of, of smoking on the lives of people who who do it and on their families. And mm. it's not it, it's it's something we should discourage. But when when the anti-smoking campaigns have got too graphic and too horrifying. Yeah. 
the actual evidence has been people have stopped listening. Yeah. You can't push too hard. You can't be too you can't be too cruel and too graphic. Or people just say that's too much. Mm. Uh, and it, 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 there may be a danger here of, 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 of pushing the button. They've been so successful so far in the creation of fear uh, that they may think they can do it limitlessly, but they may reach the limit as well. And that might also, they might also, as a result, uh, create a, a lessening of observance of, of, of the law and the rules, uh, which would be the exact opposite of what they intend. They should be a bit more careful and also a lot more respectful of the good judgment of the people they're advertising to. Yes, I think so. And also, I think it's time, as we have consistently asked, and I think you have as well, uh, for more actual data which supports what it is that they're doing, particularly with regard to lockdown, particularly with regard to the cost of that, uh, the benefit of it, you know, the effect of it, not just economical, uh, but, but the mental health uh, problems that people are getting as well. Well, I think that this, this that that comes back to us. I think we can expect them to do that. They're they're in this now. They've been wading in it so far that it would be a, a, too much trouble for them ever to go back or to admit they're wrong. But there will be an inquest into this in some form or another. And at that point, those of us who have opposed it are going to need to come up with the the facts and the figures about lockdown, about whether it was effective in the way that it was intended to be, what it cost, whether the cost of it conceivably be justified uh, by the effect that it had, even if, even if it was effective, and therefore whether we should ever do it again, to which my answer would have to be no. This is the thing we never did before. Uh, no one's ever attempted to cope with an epidemic or a pandemic with this method before. It doesn't seem to me to have worked particularly well this time. It's done immense amounts of damage, but it really is because the government itself is not going to back down. It really is up to independent thinkers. And this includes, it seems to me, many people who up till now have sat on the sat on the edge of the argument and not joined in properly, for them to say, once this is over and the, and the, the panic propaganda has stopped, actually, this wasn't a wise thing to do. It was an overreaction. And here I come back to what I said from the start. It was disproportionate. And the costs to the country and society and to life and health and education and to the healthy old has been colossal and unjustifiable. And we shouldn't ever do it again. I think that's a very good point on which to end. We are still trying to work out the Dan Hodges, uh, Peter Hitchens head-to-head -head proper debate, which we'll be doing soon. We're going to be asking you for some dates, I think, Peter, once we're off, uh, once you're off air. Our producers will try and line that up, and we'll be doing that soon. Peter, thank you very much, as ever, uh, for talking to us. Man on Sunday Economist, Peter Hitchens there, uh, with his latest take uh, on what Boris Johnson's been saying about lifting restrictions, about what uh, is going on out there, by and large, and about how, of course, these people who criticise people like him and people like me and people like Julie Hartley Bruin accuse us of somehow encouraging people to do dangerous things. Absolute and utter nonsense, rubbish and uh, absolute rot, quite frankly. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it might not have occurred to you uh, that here in this country we have gone through something of a kind of uh, counter-revolution to the point where uh, culture wars have taken the place of an awful lot of what used to be considered to be reasonable conversation. There are certain things that you now cannot say. There are certain things that you now cannot think. And there are certain things that, as far as uh, some people are concerned, uh, you shouldn't even have occurred to you. But let us talk now uh, about an organisation called Counterweight, because this is Helen Pluckrose's idea. Uh, let's find out what it's all about. Helen, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, lovely to be here. Yes, thank you very much indeed for joining us. What made you uh, come up with this idea, first of all? Because I think it's uh, it's long overdue, to be honest. 
after uh, the death of George Floyd and the BLM pro uh, protest, there was just so many emails, all of us in this space who have been concerned about critical social justice approaches were getting panicked emails from people who were having to do really quite um, authoritarian um, diversity training and right. affirm things they didn't believe. So there were so many, we set up a Discord server so we could triage the most urgent cases, give generalised advice, and Counterweight has formed out of it. Our project coordinator worked um, in the past of the Citizens Advice Bureau. Right. And so she's applied a lot of the similar methods to it, to a caseworker system, and it's, um, it's working. It's yeah. working really well. <laughs> And sort of, and, and what sorts of um, advice can you give? I mean, say for example, I was reading uh, some of the stuff that you've, you've you've dealt with in the past, where, for example, um, you know, some organisations have have become sort of overrun by people apologising for things that it's not really their fault to apologise for. You know, like people sending emails to their bosses complaining that you know they feel guilty about something that happened in the past. You know, statues have been taken down as a result. You know, this kind of thing, and it does seem to have changed the way we live, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think people have a right to believe this if um, if people do feel guilty about their race or their sex and they believe themselves to have been socialised into um, white supremacist or patriarchal beliefs or, or whatever else, they have the right to believe that. What they don't have the right to do is insist that other people believe that. Mm. The people we hear from mostly are um, white people who don't believe that they're racist and don't want to affirm that they are, and um, black and South Asian people who don't want to be um, forced to testify to a very theoretically specific experience of racism. So we're a liberal humanist organisation. We believe as liberals that people can evaluate ideas and reject or accept them. Right. And what has happened, do you think, to the people uh, in society who would have previously kind of defended basically what you're defending, which is the, the right to have a series of, of, of personal thoughts, a, a series of personal beliefs, which you don't necessarily want to preach to people every Saturday at Speaker's Corner, but which you want to be able to hold dear to yourself without somehow being criticised or, or worse, being painted as some kind of mad extremist. That's, that's what we're seeing at the moment. We're seeing a loss of liberalism, that, that idea of that respect for the marketplace of ideas, the idea of plurality. We can coexist while having different approaches right. to things. And this, I, I mean, I've looked at the scholarship. There are, um, you know, other sociologists have looked at what social changes, why, why is this happening? I recommend um, the coddling of the American mind um, and the rise of victimhood culture they're both very relevant but I've looked at the scholarship and the activism and what's coming out of the universities and it's really very much based at the moment on a Robin DiAngelo approach or a queer theory approach where it really is believed that by not believing um, the right ideas about these invisible systems of power and privilege um, you are perpetuating oppressive systems. You have to say the right things um, to fix things. We, discourses are dangerous. So if you mustn't sort of suggest that woman is a biological category, um, because otherwise you're, you're contributing to an environment that kills trans women. Yes. This is a belief now. This is something that I've noticed actually on social media, that now if you have, for example, 
um, a view about anything, you're accused of causing harm. That seems to be a tactic that certain people now use because they've worked out that it's not enough to disagree with you or to try and stop you saying something. They now try and make an accusation which you can't possibly really defend because it's so sort of ethereal. It doesn't it doesn't really exist in the real world. I mean, I've been told by, for example, sort of what I regard as rather radical cyclists uh, who want the entire world, you know, turned into a massive cycle lane and cars to be banned, that I somehow, by criticising the imp imposition of cycle lanes in London, uh, that I'm somehow encouraging people to do harm to cyclists, which, of course, is rubbish. Right. Well, uh, we might disagree on cycling, but generally, I think, um, yeah, the, the idea is that reality is socially constructed in discourses by ways of speaking about things. And if you truly believe this, and I think we have to accept that so, social justice activists and scholars really do believe this, then speech really does do harm. Mm. If somebody like JK Rowling with a big platform says that she believes woman is a biological category, then there's going to be a massive flashback. And if we look at how it happened with people saying, chanting the mantra back, trans women are women, trans women are women, trans women are women, because of this focus on language, we have to undo the harm done by certain language and replace it with better language. And this, this doesn't work with the liberal marketplace of ideas or with the conservative no. respect for personal authority or, you know, with... Uh, religious beliefs in free will so it, it's but it's a it dangerous little secularized. it's a dangerous <laughs> rocky road isn't it because you know while there are some things that you would prefer that, that, that i suppose that the, the law would protect you against for example people using hate speech against other people you know that but the trouble is is hate speech has now become expanded into all kinds of areas isn't it i think hate speech is a very difficult um I mean, obviously some speech is hateful, but how do you judge someone's um, feelings? I think the issue has to be harassment. Yeah. You know, are you forcing people to hear things they don't want to hear? Are right. you following them? Are you threatening them? Are right. you intimidating them? If you just believe something that they don't believe and that they that hurts them, you know, I'm I'm um, I'm an atheist. I I don't believe in God. Now this means that some people can be very very badly hurt by my beliefs, and historically, I would have been punished for them and and possibly killed. Yeah. So this is this is a very human thing, but we don't want to see a resurgence of it, and I, and I'm afraid we are. Yes, I know. And I mean, do you think it all started in the sort of hallowed halls of academia? Because it seems to me that that's where it began, but I don't know if that's right. That, yeah, that there's a feedback loop that goes on because it's significant that this started just as the liberal civil rights movement, gay pride, um, feminism had won their main legal battles. So this had had this these had been won in the courts, but obviously racism, sexism, homophobia hadn't gone away. So what remained was to tackle attitudes. So scholars have focused on that postmodernism, the idea of um, that discourses and beliefs and knowledge as a social construct was very useful. So we have these, these different kinds of scholarship grow up, activists be, became able to use it, apply it to everything, and it's got deeply simplified into the things we see from people like Robin D'Angelo. If you are white, you are racist. Yeah. You cannot help but be racist. Right. And what about the idea that somehow, um, interestingly, that you said you were an atheist, because I've, I've, I've read people writing that because of the kind of disappearance to a large extent of an awful lot of mainstream religion, 
that people have kind of latched onto this movement, as it were, because people inevitably want to belong to something. They want to be part of a group. They want to be something that they can associate with and, 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 and have people around them that agree with them, almost like if it was a religion. I think that critical social justice meets a lot of the same psychological and social needs that religion does. And yeah. this is why I think we need to apply the rules of secularism to it. You have the right to believe this, to express this, to live by this. Mm. You cannot force it on anyone else. There's a simplistic sort of substitution theory where some people claim that because religion is decreasing, social justice is increasing, but that doesn't work mm. geographically. Right. America remains the most religious um, place in the Anglosphere, and it also has the most <laughs> critical social justice wokery. Yes. So it's not quite as straightforward all as that. But... All, uh, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, <laughs> interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit like when I look around in parts of uh, of, of, of the city I live in, where uh, pubs have been converted into places of worship you know, in a rather kind of bizarre twist, uh, which, which which we could probably talk about all day. But what do you think is, is going to happen, say, for example, Helen, in the next sort of 12 months or so? Because I sense, and I don't know whether you would agree with this, that while this is a massive problem and, it, and has been a problem, you know, <coughs> relatively recently, it's not quite as big a problem as maybe it was in the summer of last year. I, from the input I'm getting, it's, still a significant problem. We still have a lot of cases ongoing, but I think that we're also seeing a lot of recognition of the problem. Mm. And we're seeing more and more people willing to push back. So we have got, quite a few of our members have got themselves onto equity, diversity and inclusion boards, where they are trying to keep um, viewpoint diversity open and yeah. trying to avoid really narrowly social justice ideas. We've got open whistleblowers obviously right. but a lot of people don't want to do that they don't want to punish anyone or cancel anyone they yeah. just want to make things a bit freer so i don't think things are getting better yet i think they might well get worse before they get better but i think that we the, the seeds are there mm. for saying enough is enough you you've gone too far yeah. now we need some reason <laughs> and, I, and I know that you probably would need a bit more nuance than this, but say, for example, if somebody is, I don't know, going for a job interview and they, got, and they, and they get taken down this kind of road of, of, of woke questions and, and as a result, perhaps they don't get a job because they didn't say the right thing. What mm. recourse do they have currently, if any? Well, we're, we're speaking to um, various trade unions um, about this at the moment and lawyers, and it all seems to be quite vague. Yeah. But... Um, on, an, on an ethical level, we've had um, a couple of people who have just refused um, to, uh, to one person that we're working with, he has refused to undergo unconscious bias training on right. the grounds that it's demeaning to him as a black man. So he has a little less danger of being called racist. Yeah. And um, yeah, he's told that this will be represented in his performance review and it will directly affect his income. This this isn't acceptable. It's no more acceptable than if a Christian employer were forcing a Muslim employee to pretend to believe that Jesus was the son of God or right. or something. It's, right. or to it's have a, a sort problem. Of, you know, <laughs> a religious assembly every morning or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can yeah. see how it is going to be very, very tricky in terms of legal uh, and, and, and sort of ethical work. How do people get in touch, Helen, if they need to? 
Uh, counterweightsupport.com is our website and in the middle up there if you're having an emergency there's get help otherwise there are a lot of resources that you can just access freely okay brilliant stuff well great to talk to you and good luck with the project i'm sure we'll be speaking again we may have to seek your guidance on one or two matters over the course of the year helen pluckrose editor of ario magazine co-author of cynical uh, theories and also uh, the setter upper uh, of Counterweight, as it's now called, um, an organisation which will operate as if it is a Citizens Advice Bureau uh, for people who are getting what you might regard as bullied, because that's what it is sometimes, by their employer, uh, into having to either make certain statements or undergo certain training or undergo you know, certain programming uh, in order to continue to work where they work. Because it's not that clear yet whether any of that stuff is in fact um, legal. <laughs> Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Much to do still before Ian Collins comes in just before one o'clock to tell us what's coming up uh, on his show. It is Burns Night tonight for those of you Sassanacs who do not know what that is. Uh, it's a celebration of Rabbi Burns, uh, the great Scottish poet, raconteur, uh, and some might say um, uh, a man who was, shall we say, rather... Busy in certain other areas as well. We'll come to that in one second. Let me just read you this from Barry, who's tweeted in. He says, re-vaccines. Are listeners aware that a young receptionist in an optician is being vaccinated before a frontline police officer? The government have lost the plot. Well, I think the problem is, is that government have said healthcare workers, and they've used that as a rather widespread uh, of things, because it also covers social care workers. It also covers uh, foster care workers. It also covers people in hospitals, but it also covers any other uh, health area, which I guess would be an optician's if you're a receptionist. So, I mean, I don't think they've lost the plot as such. I think they're just trying um, to cover as many bases as they possibly can. But it does one, it does make you wonder, doesn't it, whether they're making uh, this decision based upon um, vaccinating more people than fewer people because they're not giving the second vaccine out as quickly as, as they were. I'm sure this will become a conversation that we have continually throughout this week. But do give us a call uh, if you've got some news for us on that front. 0344 Right now, though, uh, time to say a very good afternoon to Gillian Stephen, Twinkle's teacher and marketing team lead for Scotland. Gillian, uh, a very good afternoon to you. Hi there, thanks for having me on the show. And a very happy Burns Night, I suppose I should say to you. I mean, there was a time when I lived in Scotland and this was a massive deal. I'd always, and we'd always do something like sort of three or four Burns Nights. You'd probably do one on a Friday, you'd do one on the Saturday, and then you'd do one on the Monday, because traditionally it's the last Monday, I think, in January, right? Yeah, traditionally. It's a bit different this year. There's not as many celebrations <laughs> able to take place out and about. But yeah, usually we would make a big deal of it and have lots of... Um, nice evening celebrations yes. and meals. And what is the traditional sort of evening celebration consist of? Because there's the, I mean, I, I find this so great because because my both my parents are from Scotland and it's always been in my blood. And so I've always, Burns Night has always meant something to me. But for a lot of people, they don't really know what it's all about, do they? No, not usually. So what happens, um, the very first Burns Supper actually took place in 1801, which was five years after Robert Burns' death, and it was his friends came together just to commemorate him. Right. Um, it's grown from there. Um, and basically what would happen is you have big celebrations where people are all invited, and you have lots of guest speakers. Uh, traditionally, your haggis would be piped in, um, your guests would be piped in with a solo piper. Um, there would be an address to the haggis, which is one of Robert Burns' most famous poems, as they're serving the meal. Um, there would be 
uh, the immortal memory which is given which is basically a speech about Robert Burns's life and then there would be a toast to the lassies which is usually the kind of more humorous part yes. of the evening later on there's a reply from the toast to the lassies so the, the ladies get their yeah. say as well um, and then the evening would have lots of entertainment maybe some highland dancing more of his songs or poems being read and then we would usually end with the good old old lang syne yes now isn't there also a stabbing of the haggis that has to happen as well Yes, that's part of the poem. Um, so throughout the address to the haggis, they talk about how they're going to slice open the haggis and it ends on um, gear a haggis. And that's when there would be lots of applause and everyone would get their fine meal. And you've got a nice, yeah, there we go. Right. There it is, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a great one for, uh, for um, when I lived in, in Edinburgh, I used to quite often quite, uh, quite like a bit of haggis um, in a roll in the morning, haggis and black pudding. Uh, with brown sauce was one of the favourite things. I mean, are you one of those people that eats haggis all year round? I would eat it all year round. I probably wouldn't have it with brown sauce in a roll. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good hangover cure, actually, I have to say. But, I mean, um, it's a it's a wonderful thing which is celebrated all over the world, isn't it? Robbie Burns was quite a character because, as, as I sort of hinted at, he was, uh, I think, several times married. Um, he was somebody who emerged, really, as, as, a, as a foremost of, of poet, but he kind of also invented his own language a little bit, didn't he? I, I think what he's more known for would be keeping the old Scots tradition and language alive. Yeah. So instead of um, creating his own, um, he's made what was actually spoken and read in Scotland at the time. Right. He made that popular. He was very keen to keep old Scots ballads alive. That's why he worked a lot with the Scottish, um, Scottish Musical Museum when he moved through to Edinburgh. Yeah. He's responsible for about a third of their 600 song collection. He was only married once. <laughs> However, there was, um, is had a very forgiven wife, shall we well, say. Well, let's put, yes, yes. You know, I think, I think well, there was, there was, there was quite a lot going on in that particular area. And he was from, um, uh, he was, he was from, was it Lanarkshire? No, so he was actually born in Alloway, which is in Ayrshire. Um, and you can still visit that cottage to this day. I actually grew up, and I'm, I'm in Aberdeen now, as you can see, but I grew up about five miles away from his house. So there was yeah. a lot of school trips and family visits to the old cottage. So he was born there um, and he stayed in Ayrshire um, until his 20s. Um, and then he was actually planning a move to the West Indies. So I've got a wee bit of information there. Um, it was just after he met the woman who he eventually married, Jean Armour. Right. And for some reason, her father was not happy with the match, <laughs> shall we say. Yes. He might have heard about his reputation. Ah. Um, so even though she was pregnant with his twins, he was not allowed to marry Jean Armour. So he decided at that point in his life, he was going to move to the West Indies right. and he was going to live in Jamaica. But this is what led to his poem being published. He was trying to raise the fare for the journey to the West Indies. Mm. So he released his... Um, he released his first publication in 1785, I believe, um, which was known as Scots Poems, chiefly in the Scottish dialect, which became later known as the Comarnock edition. And um, with that, he got sudden popularity and changed his plans from moving. And luckily for us, stayed in Edinburgh, um, moved through from Ayrshire to Edinburgh, right. um, where he became really well known right. um and was that when he, he was became sort of even more prolific with his poems yes so um he'd obviously been writing for a long time for somebody who was born into um poverty 
he actually, his father highly valued education. And so he was enrolled in the Alloway School until it closed due to financial implications. And then his father actually hired a tutor for them. He was tutored by a man called David Murdoch. Right. And then was actually able to attend another school later on in Dalrymple, which is another small town in Ayrshire. Um, he was able to attend that school, but only on a weekly basis because he couldn't be spared from the farm. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he shared his role at the school with his brother Gilbert. They would take a week on and a week off. One week he would work in the farm, one week he would go to school and he would swap with his brother. But despite that, he had, by 18, he had a very good understanding of English literature, Latin, Greek, and French, and even a keen interest in trigonometry, which oh, a lot of people <laughs> and, and how would you say he's viewed? Because, I mean, Burns Night, you could probably find a celebration in almost every country in the world somewhere um, at, at some point tonight, right? I mean, what, what, where does he sit in, in sort of in, in international um, ways in terms of literature? What, what do people think of him who are not from Scotland? I think the reason that he resonates so readily with people is because everything he writes about is basically the human emotion. It's something that we all experience. He uses quite simple language, even though it's in Old Scots and can sometimes be quite difficult to translate. Yeah. Once translated, it's about love. It's about humour. It's about things that we experience the world over. Um, there's actually more statues of Robert Burns than any other literature, literature figure really? in the world. There's more statues of him worldwide. The song Old Lang Syne is in the Guinness World Book of Records is yeah. the third most popular song after Happy Birthday and for He's a Jolly Good Fellow, in case That's you were amazing, interested. That's amazing, isn't it? That is amazing. Yeah, because it's sung again uh, every New Year in pretty much every place in the world. Yeah, and versions of it are actually sang in Japan as part of their education system. Apparently it's sang at graduations um, with his background as a farmer and his poetry there and um, so like to a mouse and the things that he wrote about nature when he was really out and about apparently they're very popular in russia right. um from that time as well so it's and then of course with the, like mass immigration of the scots from his time throughout the years going to canada and north america and yeah. um, you can see how it kind of grew grew there as well there's a very large scots community who are very proud of yes. their heritage and my love is like a red red rose is a very popular one as well isn't it Yes, it's very popular. Um, there's that and A Fond Kiss and Afton Water. And if you lead through if you look through a lot of his kind of Scots ballads, you can see places coming up from around about um Scotland and especially, especially Ayrshire yeah. and finally where he settled in Dumfries. Yes. Fascinating uh, man. What's what's if somebody wants to kind of learn more about him, what's where's a good place to start? So uh, there would be a lot on your National Museum Scotland website. Um the, they have their own Robert Burns Museum in Ayrshire as well, as do um, Dumfries, where he actually eventually, that's where he died. Yeah. Um, he's got his own monument there. And see, there's monuments all over the world, <laughs> but you can learn a lot about him there. Right. And the Robert Burns Cottage is a fascinating place to visit. And there's a experience further up. The other really cool thing about that, this is what I used to do when I was younger. Obviously, don't do this during the pandemic, but when you <laughs> out and about um if you start at robert burns cottage and just keep walking you'll eventually come past the old kirk which um features in tamashanta yeah and you can continue to walk from there and see the bridge the bridge where, yes um, i've seen that yeah yeah so in the famous poem where his um the witches pull the tail off his um horse yes um yeah you can walk over that bridge and it's it's just quite nice to be able to 
get yourself involved in the poetry. It's lovely. Whenever we used to go down that way, it was, we'd also pop into a place called Electric Bray, which I'm sure you probably know about. Have you been there? You know this place where you park a car in the lay-by and it looks as though you could, you could basically go uphill without the engine being on. It's one of those weird kind of um, optical illusions, isn't it? Optical illusions, yeah. It's my neck of the woods. I'm up in Aberdeen now, but... Yeah. Um, but born in that area and right. no areas great, great part of the world this is, so what are you doing for uh, for burns night tonight then because obviously nobody can as you say go anywhere really yeah well i've got two small boys so my challenge tonight is to see if i can get them to try a little bit of haggis excellent um, which it might end up just being neeps and tatties for them <laughs> yeah well i mean listen i mean i'm not going to ask you the next question then which is are you one of those who thinks putting whiskey on it is a good idea or a bit of whiskey cream yeah, yeah. Very nice. Excellent. Well, don't give it to the kids. Listen, Gillian, thank you very much indeed. Gillian Stephen Twinkles, teacher and marketing team lead for Scotland on Rabbi Burns, because it is Burns Night tonight. Um, so you can celebrate it any day of the week if you like. But uh, if you haven't ever had haggis, you're missing out. So you should get definitely try it. And if you don't like the taste of it, just pour some whiskey on it. And that works a treat. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.